Well, why, don't we, why don't we pray as we look to God's Word? We're going to be in John chapter 6, so why don't you turn in your Bibles to John 6. And it is Missions Month. So let me, let me pray and then we can begin. Father, we are a grateful people. We are a grateful people because you are the gracious God who called us out of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son, where we have peace with God, where we have been forgiven of all our sins, and where we have life, not just any life, but eternal life, that we will spend eternity with you. Oh God, I do pray that that through the preaching of your word that Christ's glory would be made manifest. Oh God, I pray that you would give us a vision of missions, evangelism, ministry that would so compel us to keep going, to not give up and to continue to do the task that you have called us to do. Father, do the impossible. Raise the dead this morning. Quicken the minds of your people. Open eyes that are blind. Soften hearts that are hardened. Give ears to those who cannot hear. Give life to those that are dead. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Failure is unavoidable. Failure is part of our common experience. As much as suffering, joy, pain, or love. And it seems like we will do a million things wrong before we do anything right. Failure is so unavoidable that we have actually turned failure into a virtue. The greatest minds in our world have reinvented failure and transformed it from something negative to something positive. For example, Bobby Kennedy said these words, Only those who dare to fail greatly can ever achieve greatly. The greatest inventor that we have, Thomas Edison, said these words, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Winston Churchill said these words, Success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. And the greatest hockey player of all time, Wayne Gretzky, said these famous words, you'll always miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Dennis Waitley, famous motivational speaker, said these words, failure should be our teacher, not our undertaker. Failure is delay, not defeat. It is a temporary detour, not a dead end. Failure is something that we can avoid only by saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. End quote. Sadly, this common experience of failure is somehow imported back to God. We may even ask the almost heretical question, of our Lord and ask this question, did Jesus 
fail in his mission. Now, why would someone ask such a morbid question? Well, think with me for a moment. It has been 2,000 years since the arrival of Jesus, and we still have a large population of our world that has not heard the gospel. In missiology, there is a geographic location known as the 1040 window, which spans the continents of North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. It's called the 1040 window because right above the equator, 10 degrees above it, and 40 degrees above it, there is this band, there's this window, there is this rectangular box which contains nations that comprise of 5.1 billion people. And of the 5.1 billion people, 3 billion people have no access to the gospel. That's a staggering number. 3 billion people that have no access to the gospel. 3 billion people who have never interacted with a Christian. 3 billion people who have never attended a church, attended a Bible study, attended a fellowship group, experienced what it means for someone to pray for them, experienced Christian discipleship, experienced Bible teaching of any kind, has read the Bible, have read a theology book, have experienced any kind of hope because of Christ. They are darkened. Three billion people. Three out of five people in that region have no access to the gospel. What's worse is that in our country, we hear of the gospel being modified, watered down, and replaced with cultural social issues. Churches are losing members. Pastors are being disqualified from ministry. And it seems that every time we turn on the news, more and more walls are being put up to prevent the gospel from being proclaimed. When you think about those staggering facts and the news of our day, it may not be too crazy to ask the question, has Jesus failed in his mission? But take heart. I know, I know you know the answer to this question. And the answer to that question is found for us in John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. Let's read together God's Word, how Jesus gives us the security for his mission. He says this, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will who sent me. And that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on that last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. In this passage, God wants us to see that missions cannot fail. Because of God's sovereign electing purpose. Why is it that missions cannot fail? 
Why is it that we should continue to go or send our very best to do the work of missions? Because God has secured a people long ago, in eternity past, for Himself. That ought to give you confidence. That ought to give us confidence in our task. Because if it is true that God has reserved a people for Himself, it means that our effort is not in vain. That It means people will be saved. Because it means that salvation will come to pass. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait a minute. Election. The doctrine of election. I have wrestled with that doctrine. And you might be thinking to yourself, I think the very opposite. I think election actually hinders missions. I think election actually harms evangelism. I think election handcuffs the work of global missions. Because you may have come to understand the doctrine of God's sovereignty and God's choosing of a people as a negative stumbling block that harms missions. We have even some common caricatures where Christians who believe this about missions, they have a term for people who believe in election and hold to election. They call those people the frozen chosen. The idea is very simple. That if God is going to save whom He will save, we don't have to do anything. We remain frozen. Another wrong view of election is such that election, in their view, is basically this. God gets one vote, Satan gets the other vote, and I cast the deciding vote. Both those views about election are utterly false. One has an over-realized view of one's will and the other has a completely fatalistic view of election. I want to show that Jesus was compelled to preach His gospel because of sovereign election. How do I know this? Because in this passage, there are three realities that Jesus explains. The first is God's appeal for salvation. The second is God's arrangement of salvation. The third is God's accomplishment in in salvation. And these three realities about salvation underscore how sovereign election fuels the evangelist's witness and our witness and the work of missions and how it ought to motivate us to continue to preach the gospel when it seems like all around us, every effort of ours is failing. So let's begin with God's appeal for salvation. In verse 35, Jesus says these words, these familiar words. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. This is, of course, a familiar passage. It is one of the seven I am statements of Jesus recorded for us in the Gospel of John. And this goes back, the the text goes back to verse 32 where Jesus is correcting their thinking about what happened in the wilderness when Moses gave them bread to eat, manna from heaven. And Jesus corrects them saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father that gives you true bread out of heaven. Jesus is reminding them the supply for your need 
cannot be met by any man, but it must be only met by God. Showing the supply for their need comes in source and originates from God. Again, in verse 33, we read these words. He says this, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. And again in verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven. What can we learn about this metaphor that Jesus uses for himself about bread that comes down from heaven? He repeats it over and over throughout John 6. Well, there's at least two things we can learn. One is man's helplessness. Man's helplessness. For Jesus to say that I am the bread of life, he's saying a shocking statement. He's saying, I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread. He is saying, I am God who left heaven. And it's repeated in verse 50. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven. And again in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down out of heaven. And again in verse 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven. Jesus is precise, is saying that I came from heaven down to you. In fact, I am the only one that came down from heaven. Go back to John chapter 3, verse 13. When Jesus has a conversation with our friend here, Nicodemus. And he says this to Nicodemus. And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And the Son of Man, as we know it, is Jesus Christ. No one has come down from heaven. Just as a footnote, that should tell all Christians right now to stop buying all books from all publishers that talk about people going to heaven and coming down from heaven. This is a clear verse that says no one goes to heaven and spends 90 minutes in heaven and comes down and tells us about what they experienced in heaven and he continues to... And those kinds of books deceive us all over and over and over again. No man has gone to heaven except Christ because Christ is the one who ascended to heaven and departs heaven. What's the point that Jesus says he's come down from heaven? He's showing that God had to come down from heaven because man could not go up to heaven. The implication is our helplessness. Man is totally unable to come to God on his own. Totally unable to come to God on his own. And here's how John's Gospel begins. He, he states the problem so clearly about our condition, our spiritual condition before God. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 12 to 13. Look at how John presents to us our condition but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, God wants us to know that humanity is in trouble because of our spiritual condition. We are dead. John is describing the impossibility of any man to come to God not by blood, not by flesh and not by the will of man, but of God. He says it's not by blood, meaning it's not by your lineage, not by your pedigree, not by your ethnicity. And the Jews were a proud people because they would say, well, I'm Jewish and I am from the tribe of this and I go all the way to Jacob, all the way to Abraham. And so they were very proud of their lineage by blood. But secondly, you cannot come to God by your own lineage, by your blood. But secondly, you can't come to God 
by your own merit. Because he says, not by the will of the flesh. Meaning there's nothing that you can do to merit the, the pleasure of God. There's nothing that you can do to merit God's satisfaction with you. There's nothing that you can do to please God. Nothing that you can do of your flesh. Where you can say, I've done now enough where God will now be happy with me and now God will accept me. But the problem is even worse. Because it's not just by your lineage. It's not just by your merit. And also, it's not by your will. He says, not by the will of man. That's right. You cannot come to God by your own will. But wait, some will say, but wait a minute. Isn't my will free? Well, the Bible does say that your will is free in that you are a moral agent capable of choosing right and wrong. That's why you're culpable. You are a free moral agent. But your problem is that you are your freedom is bound to who you are. You have preferences. You have desires that are bound to your nature because of the condition of your heart. And because of the condition of your heart, you are described as one who is dead. Dead in your sins and transgressions. John says this, not just in chapter 1, he says this in chapter 3, verse 17. Go turn there. Right after Jesus says the most famous passage that we all know, popularized by football players who put it under their eyes as they play football, John 3.16, where we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 explains why did Jesus come. In verse 17, he says this, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Why? Because the world should be saved, I'm sorry, uh, judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. That's not the verse. Oh, it's in verse 18. But he who believed in Him is not judged. He who does not believe in Him has been judged already. Christ came into the world because the world has been judged already. I think the idea, the notion that we have free will gives us the idea that we are somewhat neutral. We're somehow in the middle and that we are in a neutral place. We're neither right nor wrong. That's why many believe that election is about God's vote, the Satan's vote, and then I'm in the middle. I get to decide. Well, you don't get to decide because it says here you are condemned already. We cannot choose. We cannot choose God. We are in a state of deadness. We cannot choose God. We've been judged already. We are ripe for judgment. So how does Jesus appeal to the people? He shows them their helplessness. And He shows them by showing them their hunger. He shows them their need. He wants them to see that they cannot work for bread. They cannot work for this. This is something that God supplies. And the way people come to saving faith is that they must see their helplessness. They must see their helplessness before God. And that the only way they can be helped is if they receive Jesus as the bread who can satisfy their soul. So it shows their helplessness. But secondly, it must show man's hunger. The only way a person can be saved is if they hunger for this bread. Go to John chapter 6. The only way they can be saved is if they hunger for this bread. How is a person saved 
according to our Lord. Well, in verse 35, he says, He who comes to me shall not hunger. The first thing a person must do to be saved is he must come. He must come. Jesus is making a command, an invitation. He must come. He who comes to me shall not hunger. Jesus makes an invitation to come. All who are weary, come to me. All who are weary, Isaiah 55, come to the waters. Come, buy and eat and drink without money and without cost. It's a divine invitation to come. But that divine invitation to come is also a divine invitation to leave. You cannot come and remain at the same time. If you are going to come to Christ, you must leave something behind. And what is it that you leave? You leave the appeal of the world. You leave the priorities of the world. You appeal, you repent in your sin of the, the, the things that hold you down. And so Jesus says, you must come. Theologically speaking, this is where we get the word repentance. We turn from our former life and follow Christ. You cannot follow Christ without leaving behind your old self. So Jesus says, you must come. You must come. But that's not all you do in order to be saved. Jesus says this in verse 40. Jump down to verse 40. He says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son... You must behold. Not only must you come, you must also behold. And the word for behold is this word theoreo, where we get the word theorem. The idea is we are taking a closer look. We are having an investigative look at the claims of Jesus Christ. To behold is not just to make an irrational leap of faith. To behold is to clearly investigate the claims and completely be overwhelmed by those claims that we behold. You see, we don't have a dilemma. We have a trilemma. C.S. Lewis said we have a problem. We, may, we need to decide either Jesus is a lunatic, he is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. That's the trilemma. We need to decide. And for those that have decided that he is Lord, they have beheld him. They have beheld who he is. And as they behold Christ for who He is, they become like Him. So in order to be saved, you must come, you must behold, but lastly, you must believe. You must believe. In verse 36, we read that seeing Jesus is not the same thing as, see, as believing Him. Right before uh, verse 37, He says in verse 36, But I say to you that you have seen Me, and yet you do not believe. Here's Jesus having performed probably the greatest miracle in his ministry while alive. He performs this amazing ministry and all these people see this and they still do not believe. They still do not believe. And Jesus says, you see, but you do not believe. You need to believe. In verse 40, again, he says, whoever beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal Life, believing. It's all over John's Gospel. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And what is it that they're to believe? What is it, what is it exactly that they're to believe? Well, if you go to verse 51, here is what they're to believe. 
They're to believe that Jesus is the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread of which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. But Jesus is saying, believe this, that I'm going to give my life for the world. I am going to take this body, offer it as a sacrifice for your sins. That's what we're to believe. We're to believe that Jesus Christ is who He says He is. God. We're to believe that Jesus came to give away His body. He is to die for the sheep. He's to give away His life as a ransom for many. That's what we're to believe. So we're to come. We're to behold. We're to believe. Believe that you're a sinner who is helpless. Believe that you're a sinner in need of life that can only be offered by God through Jesus Christ. That's the offer. God's appeal in salvation is presenting us Christ that solves all those issues. He is the one that provides their need. He is the one that is able to reconcile us to God. And missions cannot fail because God's appeal to us is His own Son who rescues us from our helplessness and feeds us in our hunger. That's the first reason why missions cannot fail, because of God's appeal with His Son. But secondly, missions cannot fail because of God's arrangement in salvation. God makes His appeal in salvation because man is utterly dead and lost in his sin. And we've seen that man cannot save himself by his pedigree, by his merit, or by his own will. He is completely and utterly dead in his sins. He is what John says to Nicodemus, condemned already. It's so impossible that Jesus tells Nicodemus a command that is impossible to obey. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's an impossible command because that's a command that you and I can't even obey when we think about the physical realm. You and I can have no business, have no comment on our first birth. Did you have anything to do with your first birth? Did you have anything to do with the birth of your parents when you were conceived and when you were born into this world? Just as, just as you were uninvolved in your first birth, you're also uninvolved in your second birth. Why? Because it's all of God. It's all of God. It's not up to you. It's an impossible command. It is something that you cannot do. Lost people cannot find their way home. They need someone to find them. Dead people cannot come to life. They need someone to raise them. Blind people cannot see. They need someone to open their eyes. And even miracles is not enough. Because in verse 36, Jesus performs this great miracle of feeding what John records for us, 5,000 people. But if you stop and think about it, it's more than 5,000. He fed more than 5,000 because he says in verse 10 that Jesus fed and about 5,000 men. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. If you add the women, you add the children, the older women, younger women, grandparents, all that adds up to about 20,000 people. The greatest miracle that Jesus performed, it's, it's, I think, the greatest miracle that Jesus performed while alive because it's the only miracle that's included in all four Gospels. And after that miracle, it says in verse 36, But I said to you, you've seen me. And yet you do not believe. That's how blind people are. And you might be thinking to yourself, you have a friend, or maybe you're here this morning, I'll believe Jesus if I see a miracle. 
If only I would see some kind of miracle, then I'd believe. Feeding 10,000, 20,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish. Jesus walking on water. Jesus causing Lazarus to rise from the dead. Even that's not enough. What does that say? That means that's how impossible, that's how dead you are, that's how lost you are in your sins and transgressions that you cannot save yourself. And yet, God says, come. How then can you come? How is it possible for you to come? How is it possible when God has just painted this dire, helpless picture of your spiritual state? Well, here's the answer. Here's how it happens. John chapter 6, verse 37. Here's the arrangement of salvation that gives us hope of any kind. He says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. What we see in this passage is three things. We see that Jesus receives a people. We see that Jesus saves a people. And we see that Jesus keeps a people. First, He receives a people. In God's arrangement, what we see is the Father is giving something to the Son. He's giving something to the Son. And Jesus is doing something out of the Father's will. In verse 38, He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I am coming down here because the Father has a mission for me. He's going to give me a people. He's going to give me a people that He has established in eternity past long ago. God in His mercy has chosen a people to be saved as an act of sheer grace and mercy. But we must keep in mind here that nobody deserves this mercy. This is why election is glorious because none of us deserve this. None of us deserve to be saved because of our deadness, because of our lostness, because of our pride, because of our utter sin that, that permeates every part of our being. That even after seeing miracles, we'll still say, I don't believe that. That's a trick. Even after seeing people rise from the dead, I don't believe that. Even after seeing Jesus again in the flesh, in His resurrected state, they still say, I don't believe that. That's how lost people are. And so the only way God will save you, remember, you're not neutral. You're not in the middle. You're not as if to say, well, my will can take me here or there. You're bound to that deadness whereby you cannot choose God by merit, by pedigree, or by your own will. The only way God saves you is He calls you out. He has chosen you from eternity past. He chooses you and He does this by grace. Because we are born sinners, condemned already, John 3.18 says. We're not neutral. We do not have a vote. We're dead. Packer says this, God, O oh sinners, no mercy of any kind, only condemnation. So it is a wonder and matter for endless praise that He should choose to save any of us, and doubly so when His choice involves the giving of His own Son to suffer as a sin-bearer for the elect. 
So here's the arrangement of salvation. God the Father gives a people to the Son. And because God gives a people to the Son, Jesus receives the people. And notice what Jesus does. He saves the people. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. They will be saved. They will abandon this world's ways and embrace the kingdom of God. Let me ask you, how do you know you're saved? How do you know? How do you know that you've come to Christ? Because you've come, haven't you? Because you've repented. You've abandoned your former life. You've abandoned your former ways and now followed Christ's ways. When you hear Christ's voice, you follow. Not only have you come, but you've beheld Christ as your Lord and as your King. You've beheld Him. That means you've been overwhelmed by the King of kings and Lord of lords who has left heaven to pursue an undeserving sinner like yourself. That's what beholding means. As you know, Queen Elizabeth II died this past week. Many stories were coming out about what she was like. One of the stories that caught my attention was told by her former bodyguard, Richard Griffin. His story, as he tells it, he was walking with the Queen at Balmoral Park, where she frequently visits. And as was her custom, every time she would see a passerby, she would say hello and greet them. But on this one occasion, she met two Americans on holiday, as they say, on holiday. And these two Americans did not recognize the queen. Well, the American man starts a conversation with the queen, and they say some niceties. They talk uh, small talk. And eventually, the American man asks the queen, where do you live? Well, the queen says, well, I live in London, but I do have a, a home here in the hills. Buckingham Palace, but she doesn't say that. She doesn't let on. And the American then says, oh, so you're from London. How long have you lived in London? And so the Queen says, well, I've lived in London all my life. I've been there for about 80 years. And so the American man says, 80 years? You've been there that long? You must have met the Queen. And so the Queen says, um, well, I have never personally met the Queen, but my bodyguard, uh, but my but Richard here has. And so the, the man looks to Richard and says, Richard, you've met the queen? And before Richard could answer, the man goes up to the, the, the bodyguard, to Richard, gives the camera to the queen and says, can you take our picture? And then afterwards, Richard, very nice, says, maybe you should take a picture with her as well, take a picture. I tell that story because that picture is really a picture of what Christ did when He came on the earth, isn't it? Our Lord was veiled in His majesty. No one knew who He was. He was a commoner. He was just like every man. Isn't that man Joseph's son? Isn't that man from Nazareth? He was a common man. And even now, thousands of years later, when I read these words from this book, I'm persuaded that this, this cannot be just a common man. This man who speaks is not just some common man. This man is the Son of God. This man is the King of Kings who left heaven to be with a below average person like me, to speak with me, 
to love me, to visit with me, to give his life for me, to die in my stead, to give his life as a ransom for me. This man, this king, who abandoned the glory of heaven and became like me, putting on the likeness of sinful flesh, that he would dare spend time with people called the Bible, what the Bible calls sinners. You see, Jesus is not just a good teacher. To behold Him is to understand who He truly is. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. The Savior of men. Have you beheld Him in that way? So that your heart is inflamed with joy. Just like the two men walking on the road to Emmaus, they're thinking, who is this man? But when their eyes beheld the King of kings that was walking with them, were not our hearts inflamed with fire because they beheld His glory. Jesus saves the people because they come, because they behold, and because they believe. Have you believed that Jesus has saved you from the punishment of your sins? Have you believed that Jesus is the sin bearer? That's how Jesus saves. He receives the people then because He receives the people, He will save them through those means through that message, through that method of preaching, that exact message. And lastly, what does Jesus do in this arrangement of salvation? He not only saves them, but He keeps them. He says this in verse 37, And the one who comes to Me, I will certainly not cast out. I will certainly not cast out. It's the strongest statement in the Greek language to put an emphasis on something. It's a double negative. It literally reads, no, never, I will cast out. A double negative to emphasize, never, ever, ever, ever will I cast out all who come to me. In other words, the ones that the Father has given to me, they are secure. Their salvation cannot be lost. Jesus bases His mission not by the amount of responses to Him, but on the fact that His Father has given Him a people. That's why He came, not to do His own will, but the will of the Father. The will of the Father was for Him to be given a people that He will receive, that He will save, and that He will keep. Losing none of them. Losing none of them. Verse 40, He says this, and this is the will of My Father, or I'm sorry, verse 39, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I shall lose nothing. None. He keeps them. He keeps them. He keeps them. He came to do not His will, but the Father's will. So imagine what our Lord faced in His ministry. Did He not face failure? He did not face discouragement. What is it that motivated Him to continue to do the work of ministry? What was it that caused Him to do the work of preaching the gospel, even though so many left him, so many denied him. His own disciple, the leader of his disciples, denied him up to three times. So so many did not understand him that he even spoke in parables to confuse them even, even further. This is an encouragement for us to preach that even when we're surrounded by apparent failure and rejection, we continue to preach. The same is true. When we preach the gospel, and it seems as though there is no fruit. It seems as though there is no fruit. 
It seems as though people are getting caught up in signs and wonders. It seems as though churches like Bethel and Reading are amassing crowds by all their signs and wonders ministry. It seems as though mega churches where they preach prosperity like Joel Osteen are gathering for themselves a large people group and here you are faithful and you see no fruit in your ministry. Even though it seems when people are leaving our state, even though it seems that people are being prevented from gathering because of government lockdowns, even though as it seems as though people are afraid to gather and assemble in worship service because of disease, even though it seems as though the gospel is dying in America, and even though it seems that we're failing again and again, men being disqualified from ministry, remember this, Christ is building His church. Christ will continue to build His church. Why will Christ continue to build His church? Because He's been given a people. And this people will be saved. And this people will be kept. That's why. Because God keeps His promise to keep His people. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was afraid, if you remember his story, was afraid of being cast out of the Roman Catholic Church. That was the last thing, by the way, he wanted to do, was to leave the Catholic Church or do anything that would disparage the Catholic Church. That was the last thing he wanted to do. All he wanted to do was raise objections to the false papacy, to the false teaching, and eventually to the false gospel. But he took solace in this verse, John 6, 37. He took solace in this verse, knowing that he would never be cast out of Christ's true church. And as a pastor, he knew how many believers worried that Christ might reject them as unworthy or unwanted. So he would comfort them with this verse saying, quote, this, the verse, John 6.37, he would say this, This offers the greatest comfort. It is intended for the weak conscience, which is uncertain about its relationship to God and lives in constant dread of having an unmerciful God. Such a turbulent heart can be hushed and stilled by this text. It can repose and base its faith on the person of Christ. What comfort to know that you cannot lose your salvation. It's a comfort to know that God's promise He will keep. That it's not up to you to hang on to your salvation. It's not up to you to cling to that salvation of yours because it is Jesus who keeps you. And He will never, ever let you go. Lastly, not only does God offer us His appeal in salvation or shows us the arrangement of salvation, but God also shows us His application of salvation. What is the goal? What is the goal of salvation? What is the point? What is it? We'll go down to verse 40. This is what Jesus says. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. The goal is that you will have life. That's the goal. Eternal life. Jesus identifies Himself as the bread of heaven, saying in verse 33, For the bread of God is which, that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Verse 47, Truly, truly, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 50, 
This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that everyone who may eat of it shall not die. Over and over and over again, eternal life. That's the goal of salvation, that you would have life in Christ. The Gospel of John was written in John chapter 20, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. The application of salvation is simply this. You have life. Whereas before you did not have life and now you have life. Why do you have life? Because you have Christ whom you did not have before. Sundar Singh was born in an Indian Sikh family. But soon after his conversion he became an itinerant Christian sadhu. Sadhu means a holy man. And then he was once asked by an agnostic professor of comparative religions in a Hindu college. And the question was this, what did he find in Christianity which he had not found in his old religion? What was it that you found in Christianity that's not available for you in Hinduism? Sundar replied, I have Christ. The professor said, no, well, I know that with impatience in his voice. But what particular principle, what particular doctrine have you found that you did not have before? Sundar replied as plainly as he could, saying, the particular thing that I have found is I have Christ. Not a principle. Not a system that competes with another system. It's not a philosophy that is more coherent than another, even though it is. It is not a principle or a doctrine that is more, more airtight than others. It's a person who you, once you did not have, but now you do have. That's the basis of Christianity is now you have life. You are saved from a life absent of Christ and you are saved to a life where you do have Christ. Dear friends, the ultimate goal of salvation is not an escape from hell. It's not an escape from hell. The ultimate goal of salvation is not even forgiveness of sins. It's not even the removal of your debt while great. The ultimate goal of salvation is not even as marvelous and wonderful as it is, is not justification. It's not glorification. The ultimate end of our salvation is that we have Christ. How does God ensure that we will have Christ? He promises to give us a resurrection body in order that we will be with Him forever. Jesus says this, I will raise Him up on that last day. It's that simple. I will have Christ. In fact, when Jesus was telling His disciples in the upper room, as they were truly in a panic in that upper room, knowing that behind those doors there are soldiers that are going to persecute them, Jesus gives them comfort. And, and Peter, the leader of the disciples, you remember his, his words to Jesus. He says, where will we go? Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus says to them, where I go, you cannot follow me now. You cannot follow me now. But you will be with me. You will follow me later. I'm going ahead. I'm going to die. And I'm going to be raised. And one day, you will be with me. Because you will live with me forever. The same promise was given 
to the thief on the cross, when he said to the thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. Dear friends, what makes paradise paradise is Christ. That's what makes paradise paradise. It's not the, not the absence of hell. It's not the forgiveness of your sins, though wonderful as those things are. It's the presence of Christ. You see, missions cannot fail because God has made an appeal through His Son. He has arranged salvation for His Son. And He has applied eternal life by His Son. God's people are in all the nations. And that's why Jesus said, make disciples of all the nations. We don't know where they are. We don't know where they're located. We don't know who they are. But what we do know is that we must go. We must go to the nations and proclaim this message of come. We can't pick and just say, well, we're just going to preach the offer, but remove election. We, or we, we can't just say, I'm just going to preach election and not offer. We must, we must preach both. Because that's what Jesus does. And that's what motivated Jesus. The sovereign electing purpose of God is what motivated Jesus to press on even though he was surrounded by failure. And you and I will fail. It is inevitable. It is inevitable. It's unavoidable. The 1040 window is vast. Three billion people is not a number that is too big for God. Why? Because God has given a people to the Son so that there will be success in our mission. There will be a response to the gospel. And this is helpful so that we will not be tempted to modify the gospel message. We will not be tempted to modify the message, to modify our method, but instead may we be faithful to present Christ, to be faithful to Him and to preach His gospel to the nations. Let's pray. Father, how tempting to retreat when we are surrounded by failure. How tempting it is to change and alter what we're doing when we don't see any fruit. How tempting was it for your son? It says he was tempted in all ways. Tempted like we are, yet without sin. I'm certain he must have been tempted. Could you have given me other people than these? And yet he pressed on because he knew that he's been given a people. And how, how we must press on, how we must continue this work of missions because the Father has given the Son a people to save and to keep. May we keep that in our minds as we do this work of missions. Some of us here may go. Some of us may stay. Some of us may plant. Some of us are just doing the work of ministry here locally and we are losing hope. Oh, give us a vision of what you see that we at times fail to see, that there is a remnant, that there is a people that remains. That may, they may not know you yet. Oh God, help us to be that vessel, to be the means to open our mouths and find who the elect of God are, that they would come, that they would behold, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in His name we pray.